Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161BS127, Emerson, The Transcendentalist, The Rise of Environmentalism, From the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 231, December the 3rd, 1990. This evening, Otto Scott and I are going to discuss the Transcendentalists, Emerson in particular, and the rise of environmentalism. Uh, Chris Hanlon of Kansas City, Missouri, requested that we deal with this subject, and I think it's a very good suggestion. We fail to appreciate the extent to which the Transcendentalists did affect our thinking in a vast number of spheres. And the background of their thinking is important to understand. Otto has worked extensively in Emerson so that he can go into the background much more extensively than I can. Uh, however, let me say by way of introduction that Far Eastern thinking had a profound influence on the Transcendentalists. It also led to the very deep strain of sentimentalism that left-wing uh, thinking in the United States has had ever since then. To illustrate, one of the high points of the Transcendentalist faith was the exaltation in Conway and others like him, Frothingham and so on, of Kuan Yin, the Buddhist goddess of mercy. The myth has it that Kuan Yin said that she would stand outside the gates of heaven throughout eternity until the last human being was brought into heaven, and only then would she enter in. Now that story of Kuan Yin was cited with uh, tremendous uh, awe by the transcendentalists. And it was that kind of sentimentality that was very appealing to them. They were universalists. But even more, they were pantheists. Ralph Waldo Emerson's poem, Brahma, uh, very definitely showing the influence of Hindu thinking, was in all the anthologies when I went to school and was one of the things that um, we studied in the classroom and were expected in some instances to memorize. Let me read that. Uh, Brahma by Ralph Waldo Emerson. If the red slayer thinks he slays, or if the slain thinks he is slain, they know not well the subtle ways I keep and pass and turn again. Far forgot to me is near, shadow and sunlight are the same. The vanished gods to me appear, and one to me are shame and fame. They reckon ill who leave me out. When me they fly, I am the wings. I am the doubter and the doubt. 
and I the hymn the Brahmin sings. The strong gods pine for my abode and pine in vain the sacred seven. But thou, meek lover of the good, find me and turn thy back on heaven. Now this is pure pantheism. It's the basis, this type of thinking, of Nietzsche's beyond good and evil. After all, if all things are Brahma, if everything is God, then there is nothing good and nothing evil. All is the same. So we are to find Brahma and turn our back on heaven and turn our back on faith because both the doubter and the doubt are a part of Brahma. This kind of thinking led to the exaltation of nature and the depreciation progressively of man. And it is basic to the transcendentalist the Unitarian Universalist perspective in the United States. The intellectual establishment of this country, the university atmosphere, is heavily saturated with this type of thinking. Otto, would you like to make a general preface to the subject? Well, <coughs> Emerson was one of those individuals that I was taught in school that I really didn't cotton to. There was something about him which uh, I didn't care for. It was well expressed later by an Englishman who met him in London who said he was too boneless. <laughs> <laughs> if they had still an established church in Massachusetts when Emerson had been ordained, I suspect that he wouldn't have taken the path that he had. But he had before him the example of Channing, who made a sort of a name for himself by imitating the English Unitarians. And he had a literary... Uh, reputation in England and at that time England of course was our great uh, elder brother so to speak the United States had no intellectuals as such and the English set the tone Boston looked at London as somebody looking in the mirror and Emerson later on married a very sick heiress, a woman who had advanced tuberculosis, who was obviously not long for this world. She was a, an invalid, and then sued for her portion of her family estate, although she died before she was 21. It was a very unpleasant case. The family really didn't want to go into it at great length and great expense, and they finally decided to let him have her share, and that set him, made him independently well-to-do. Not wealthy, but substantial. And after he became substantial, he developed great qualms about communion and about Christianity in general, and he pulled out of the church. He reached the stage where he wouldn't even attend the services because he didn't like the preacher 
who incidentally was a sort of a pastor more than a preacher. And Emerson said that the time he spent <clears throat> in the woods during the service period, during those hours, was really much closer to God than attending the church. And of course, as you pointed out, he moved on, not simply to Buddhism, but more to Hinduism. Yes. And the Hindu idea, which apparently is news to most Americans, is that Krishna, the creator, is also the god of devastation, the god of death, the god of birth, the god of death, the destroyer of worlds. There is no difference in the Hindu religion between evil and good. You can get to nirvana through evil or through good. Christianity and Judaism <clears throat> are unique in the fact that virtue overcomes vice. But for the Hindus, vice is just as good. Yes. It may be one of the reasons that it's lasted so long, <clears throat> especially among unreflective people, and it may be one of the reasons why it's become so popular under other names in the United States. The New Age movement is pure Hinduism under uh, different names. We have here a great many plagiarists uh, who plagiarize ideas and plagiarize concepts, plagiarize expressions. Now we are in the process of plagiarizing other civilizations without making any admission. If, of course, people were told this is the Hindu idea, they'd turn away from it. If they told this is the New Age, they move toward it. Mr. Emerson did an awful lot to open that gate. Yes. And therefore, he is a very significant cultural and intellectual figure. And I would say that he created Thoreau. Thoreau looked up at him as a mentor, as a person to imitate, and Thoreau couldn't follow him into literary pastures, into poetry and so forth, essays, reading, but he did pick up the worship of nature, and that's where Walden came <clears throat> and all the rest. Well, Emerson, while he maintained, I think, the pose of a philosopher and a wise counselor, was a rather immature person and uh, Thoreau the epitome of immaturity. I think Thoreau is a significant figure because he was so popular among the college students who became a part of the movement of the 60s, the hippie, and before that the beatniks. And Thoreau was, like them, a dropout. His little cabin in Walden was uh, a facade. He didn't live there. It was on Emerson's property anyway. Yes. <clears throat> he would have his meals at home with Mama. He'd spend his time with the new accounts at the village store uh, talking all day, but never missing a meal that Mama would put on the table. When he was out in the woods, he carelessly started a fire 
and thought it was silly that people were so concerned about uh, saving the woods. Like Emerson, his Hinduism meant that all things are equal, therefore all things are good, all things are bad, all things are meaningless. And it was a joke to get so involved in preserving the uh, forest. He would not help fight the fire that he accidentally started. So this vein of immaturity that we see in the New Left and the environmentalists and others is very, very deep, and it has its roots in the transcendentalists. Well, they, of course they were important politically as well. Yes. Now, Thoreau put up a justification for defying the state and went to jail for a day or so. Everyone seems to forget that somebody else paid his fine, Mm -hmm. and therefore he was released. And they hold him up as a sort of a martyr and an exemplar of how how a good man can defy the state on a matter of principle. As I recall, there was some kind of a piddling tax that he didn't want to pay. And actually, he was fairly acute commercially. I mean, he was part of his family's pencil factory, and uh, as you hinted, didn't skip any meals. He wasn't a, a poverty at all cost type. He wasn't didn't wear sandals. The whole argument, though, of passive resistance that he brought to the fore was a forerunner of the actual resistance to the law that the transcendentalist encouraged. The abolitionist movement looked to the transcendentalists as their intellectual inspirers Mm -hmm. because their basic argument, or their biggest argument, was that goodness was above the law. They talked about the higher law. Yes. Now, the higher law concept, which Nietzsche, as you said, picked up later in his Ubermensch, Superman, The higher law is anything that you want to say is the higher law. There's no code for the higher law. If you don't like the statutes or the rules as they are, then you can say, as a matter of principle, I believe in the higher law. We both have a friend of ours who is now under indictment because he felt that he has a grasp of the higher law that exceeds the laws of commerce and taxation. Now... Everyone, of course, can claim a higher law. Hitler declared a higher law. His ideas on race, he felt, superseded all the laws on the books. Mm -hmm. So this is a very dangerous concept that the transcendentalists opened up. Yes. Well, it also led to Phariseeism because with their concept of the higher law, of which they were the prophet, no one else had the appreciation of truth that they did. They were ready to damn everyone around them as somehow crass, materialistic, and insensitive. I picked up the other day uh, at a ridiculous price in uh, mint condition six volumes of Garrison's 
uh, letters and papers. Oh, I hope you have a strong stomach. Well, <laughs> that's why I'm taking it in small doses. And here, the leading abolitionist echoes the language of Thoreau and of Emerson in the that he is like them a Pharisee. There isn't the slightest doubt that what he thinks is the truth. Now, in the Christian perspective, the truth is Jesus Christ, not us, not our thinking. It is something above and beyond us. We worship the truth. We seek to follow the truth, but we can never say, I am the truth. And this is what these men, the transcendentalists, to the environmentalists of our time, are so insistent about. They are the walking truth. So that if you want to see Phariseeism in the modern world, look at the environmentalists. Well, they're better than other people. Now, it's interesting that the commercial is never too far away from these people in terms of their dislikes. Mm -hmm. One of the things that Emerson uh, and company didn't like was the growth of industrialization in New England. For one thing, it was bringing up new people. It was bringing up people who hadn't, didn't, hadn't been there for seven generations, who weren't part of the uh, ruling class. Railroads were coming in, textile mills were coming in, Emerson resented this. This was a cultural clash. He resented the changes that were coming, although he used the railroads himself to go around and lecture. The fact was, he and his group were no longer the preeminent individuals in New England. New England was changing. New people were coming in. New people were rising up. And to be purer, than the manufacturers, the textile uh, mill operators, and so forth. One had to be above crass commercial interests. And this is from the man who sued his wife's family. Yes. And uh, we find this strange combination running all like a red thread through our environmentalists also. We find that they very often are fairly well-to-do people who have inherited their money and who don't want to be stained by having a development come into the area. They're, they're against growth, but of course, after their own home has been created and situated, they don't want a bunch of smaller houses to appear and sully the landscape. Yes. So you have, then and now, an interesting combination of commercial, cultural, and semi-religious arguments coming up. There is something holy about nature. I don't know if they've ever seen a liver fluke. I don't know if they've ever seen some of the parasites that infest fish, or if they've ever been bitten by a rattlesnake like Dorothy, but nature has is long far from benign. I mean, I long ago noticed that God's creation has got some very fearsome things in it. Well, when I was in seminary, I, in fact, I wrote a paper for a specialist in, on Emerson. And I had another professor who thought highly of Emerson. 
And uh, I'd like to, before I comment about <laughs> a little bit of trouble I got myself into, quote Emerson in his book on nature. In the woods we return to reason and faith. There I feel that nothing can befall me in life, no disgrace, no calamity which nature cannot repair. Standing on the bare ground, my head bathed by the blithe air and uplifted into infinite space, all mean egotism vanishes. The currents of the universal being circulate through me. I am part or parcel of God." Unquote. Well, I'm glad there's no mosquitoes there. <laughs> well, the mosquitoes would have to be part and parcel of God if he were logical. Of course, and they are. But uh, there certainly is creation. My problem came part about of curse. Yes, came about when I remarked of uh, one of these Emersonian characters that I uh, I was asked, didn't I like him? Didn't I? respect his moral stature and I said I think he is a very humble man for one who believes he is God <laughs> I think it got back to him because he really uh, ripped into me when I turned in my next paper <laughs> but uh, Emersonianism transcendentalism Unitarianism has led to American Phariseeism, and it's very much with us. Well, it led to a whole school of art. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the paintings are, of course, magnificent, and there's no question that we have some uh, beautiful, beautiful places in the country. Uh, but it led to more than just the art. It led to the whole idea of the wilderness being good in itself. Now, you, yes. you recall when when the pilgrimage, pilgrims landed, and in fact in Christian literature traditionally, the wilderness has always been considered one of the great trials, uh, an area of great suffering. The term commonly used in the Puritan literature was this howling wilderness. Right. And the transcendentalist turned it around into something else, yes. in, into uh, Edenic mm -hmm. sort of thing, a wonderful experience. I mean, you'd think they'd never really been up, never been in the woods, mm -hmm. because anyone who has doesn't really have that kind of view. And this worship of the great outdoors, which resembles to some extent, the uh, English worship of the countryside. Mm -hmm. uh, when a man gets some money in England, the first thing he does is to buy a house in the country. And then, of course, uh, there's much about gardening. Uh, I happen to be one of these terrible people who look, I prefer someone else to do my gardening. I'm not ever going to be out there in a sunbonnet <laughs> pruning <laughs> the roses. Not my, not my thing. Not even without a sunbonnet. No, but the, the English go pretty heavily on that sort of thing. And I don't think American men have ever gone in for gardening too much either, except as a commercial enterprise. But lots about the country, a home in the country, and a summer retreat 
in a more semi-rustic area away from the city. And I can see that. We're living in a rustic area ourselves at this point, but we're living here. Mm-hmm. It isn't something that we're visiting as a pilgrimage. Yes. Well, I love the countryside, having grown up on a farm. But I know that life here is a struggle as it is everywhere. All you have to do is to plant a garden and some fruit trees, as I have, and Mark also, and see what the gophers do, and the squirrels, and the deer, and so on and on, uh, to realize that nature is anything but beneficent and friendly. No, nature is something one has to struggle with, Mm -hmm. one's own nature as well as the nature outside oneself. It has to be subdued, it has to be put under control. This is exactly what the environmentalists claim they're talking about. They want to control nature, however, by controlling man. They think that we are the... uh, aberrant, so to speak. We do not belong in this world, in God's world. Of course, I don't know whether they include themselves. We haven't reached that stage. But there is a sort of a death wish involved. Yes. Uh, recently, in Insight, one uh, environmentalist is qu- was quoted as saying the I, a goal was an environment freed of all human influence. Well... I read years ago uh, something by World Watch, which is an institute in Washington, D.C., about the kind of world that they would have if they could have what they want. It would be a world in which no uh, concentration of human beings would be more than a thousand. Everyone would, travel would no longer be necessary because the entire world would live the same way. Uh, There would be no automobiles or internal combustion engines. There would be bicycles, although they didn't explain how they were going to manufacture them. There would be footpaths. There would be no use of uh, oil, coal, or wood. They would use biomass. They would use uh, the wind, the windmills. They would have airships with sails instead of with engines, and they would go back to sailing vessels at sea and everyone would have the same income and the same level of living. All homes would be the same size and are gathered that all clothing, although how they were going to make it they didn't say, uh, would be very similar. It would be a vast, you might say, pre-Christian civilization. It would be a return to Mesopotamia without the temples, and without the wars of, say, 5,000 years ago. Well, in England, these people have already gained for themselves, legally, the right to cross anybody's property, any farmer. They can make paths through there, and it's become a problem because they leave gates open and are generally a nuisance. Well, they're allied, they're first cousins to the animal rights people. Yes. Because the environmental issue here is that the snail darter and the owl and all other forms of life are just as sacred as man, as as humanity. So you're back to animism. Yes. 
and allied uh, part of animism is that we are animals the theory is we are animals we are kin to the animals as the primitives the aborigines mm -hmm. call themselves the fox people or the lion people or whatever we are descended according to darwin from animals and according to some of the anthropologists, we are animals in terms of our earthly body and so forth. So here you have a retreat, not only to Hinduism, but a retreat to animism, a retreat to the earliest civilizations. Yes. And one American environmentalist has said that the uh, habitation of man should be restricted to the coastal areas in the center of the United States restored to its natural state. Well, then the Middle West would become a desert again. Yes, of course. The environmental movement, of course, is leading to a great deal of insanity and a destructiveness as far as the economy is concerned. For example... The Sacramento Union for Tuesday, November 27, 1990, on the front page has a story about the uh, proposed new $100 million terminal at Sa Sacramento Metropolitan Airport. The whole area is growing, and there is a very urgent need for another uh, terminal. However... The proposed 279-acre East Terminal Development Project, which has been on the drawing board since the mid-1970s, could disturb the western pond turtle and such birds as Swanson's hawks, other reptiles, the western fence lizard, southern alligator lizard, racer, gopher snake, and common garden variety garden snake, garter snake, could be in deep trouble if the terminal is constructed. The giant garter snake, which once thrived in the Great Valley, is deemed a threatened species by the California Fish and Game Department. And so on and on. Now, last year, four million passengers flew out of the metro airport. And they are desperately in need of more facilities, another terminal. They expect 7 million passengers in not too many years, early in the next decade. So, here this approved project is being held up just because people are saying these species are threatened and one of them is a threatened species. Of course, this classification as threatened is an arbitrary one. Threatened by whom? Yes. Threatened where? The uh, the spotted owl of Oregon, which supposedly can only exist in uh, virgin stands of forest. And so all logging has been stopped and countless numbers of men thrown out of work, thousands of them, is now found to be plentiful in... Uh, second-growth forests and young forests. And yet, the same old story is repeated about the threatened uh, spotted owl. 
maybe we should start introducing intelligence tests for our elected officials and refuse to allow anyone to run for a public office that doesn't have superior intelligence because we're obviously in the hands of imbeciles. And we need a moral test of some sort yes. too. Yes. I was glad of one thing that appeared in the Stockton record for uh, Friday, November 30, 1990. And it means that uh, some sense is being shown. Front page story, County ignores Kit Fox request despite warnings from their attorney that they face civil and criminal penalties. County planning commissioners Thursday night told the federal government to shove the kit box and approved a $100 million Safeway distribution center. In its nearly unanimous vote for the 1.6 million square foot center, the planners intentionally left out a requirement by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Survey that Safeway obtained federal permission before proceeding with construction. Commissioner R.W. Gillespie abstained from the vote because he did not attend the meeting. Now, to uh, skip uh, down in the article, uh, there was a request by federal wildlife officials that Safeway set aside more than 500 acres of land to replace potential kit fox hunting ground being taken by the project. Now the interesting thing here, apart from the fact that somebody's finally stood up to these people, is that there was no evidence that the Safeway project was threatening any kit fox. It was a potential threat. Anything is potential. Of course. And for that, they were going to have to buy 500 high-priced acres and dedicate them, give them to the federal government as a sanctuary. Well, you remember the BBC film that I showed you called The Greenhouse Hoax? Yes, that was excellent. Well, that was done in England. It was started by a man who believed in the environmental movement and who went around to interview scientists regarding the greenhouse effect. And he discovered to his amazement that there is none. That, in fact, the earth has been cooling, uh, but it's been going through for thousands of years, alternating periods of coolness and uh, heat. And he interviewed one or two scientists who made fools of themselves, or revealed themselves to be fools, rather. And then, toward the end, he interviewed a scientist who was going around talking about the reality of the environmental situation in which he said that acid rain is not a problem, there is no heating, mm -hmm. there is no greenhouse effect, and so forth. He, Warren Brooks, the columnist, had first heard this particular scientist deliver a speech to a group of other scientists who gave him a standing ovation mm -hmm. at the conclusion of his talk. And Brooks, who was a very good reporter, uh, went over and said, well, if this is the case, if all the real scientists are agreed that this is the case, why don't we hear more about it? Well, the man said, this is a matter of one's career. To come forward 
and to label all the cracks and all the lies that are being promoted about the environment means that we would lose our research grants and we would lose our jobs in universities and with companies because to go against the media and the environmental lobby means that we would be politically given punishment. So here we have a situation, unprecedented as far as I know in a civilized world, in any time, anywhere, where solid information is considered beside the point because what is involved are votes mm -hmm. and influence. Now, the question that next arose in my mind was why did the media go, does the media go along with this? And Warren Brooks said, well, the more environmental studies are made, the more departments the government creates, the more activity the government engages in, the more the government enlarges, the more newspaper jobs there are, the more communications jobs there are. The media is expanding at the same rate as the government. They're in partnership. Mm -hmm. And that's why. Well, there are so many excellent scientists who are calling attention to uh, the fallacies of environmentalism, and it's a futile exercise. If they're heard, they are very much attacked and are made to look like uh, quacks or uh, stooges for big business and so on. And in one field after another, the media goes to the worst sources. Uh, this week I've noticed two things. It's December, Christmas season, and the current Life magazine on its cover features the major article, Who is God? Who is God? Yes. And they go to... Somebody on life staff? Somebody they might reach? Well, they've gone to the most unlikely people to get an answer to that question. Oh. Uh, I believe an eight-year-old was one and some offbeat characters, including a minister, Presbyterian minister, who is dying of AIDS. He is a homosexual and he knows what God is. Well, he soon will, at any rate. Yes. And in the new uh, U.S. News and World Report, they have something uh, for the Christmas season on God again and on Christ and the Gospels. And, of course... Are they pouring acid over it as usual? As usual. And... Uh, I believe the concluding paragraph has this profound statement that God is our very breath, which sounds more like Emerson than the Bible. Well, it is Emerson. Yes. You know, he, what was it? He wanted to be a transparent eyeball <laughs> and wound up with aphasia so that he could walk around and he could see he, uh, could look, but he couldn't remember anything at all. His memory was totally destroyed, so he became, God made him what he said he wanted to be. Mm -hmm. 
It was one of the most eerie endings of any man's life I've ever looked at. About, oh, 30 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, I think it was 30. Uh, I'm fuzzy on it now, but at the time I was very much struck by the uh, parallels. Some uh, American who was supposedly now a Buddhist monk wrote a book on seeing with a third eye. Oh, that was a Theodore Reich, I believe. I'm sorry, I can't think of his name. That's not the name. There's another name. Seeing with a third eye. I thought it was a psychiatrist book. I didn't realize that it was a religious book also. Yes, well, a number of things were then written about the subject. Yes, they were. But uh, at the time, I read uh, one of the books and browsed in the others, and I was very much struck by the resemblance to Emerson. Mm. So uh, a lot of the hogwash we have today, the neo-orientalism, the worship of uh, Eastern uh, ideas. And the worship of animals. Yes. Now, there's always been a certain anthropomorphism involved in uh, discussions of animals. I mean, not just uh, Burr Rabbit stories and Aesop's fables and so forth, but through the centuries, uh, there we have a sort of a kinship, but there are limits to it. Mm -hmm. uh, we are in charge here, mm -hmm. and animals are not people. And yet, it's amazing how many animals are now protected. The uh, rattlesnake is protected in some states. Florida is one of them. Briefly, California was one such state, but Bill Richardson got that law repealed. Well, at the same time, we are slaughtering more animals that are being kept needlessly. The household pet thing is way out of hand. Mm -hmm. There are people who just release the dog, take mm -hmm. him out and dump him on the road somewhere, yeah. which is the cruelest thing I've ever heard yeah. of. And there are others who go crazy and have 1,800 cats in the house. They have to, the cats have to be gathered up and, and put away. Uh, the Humane Society keeps telling these people to watch over their animals and take care of them, and they're not because they don't. Uh, it seems to me that we've developed a generation that doesn't know as much about animals as we used to. No. They don't know how to handle a dog. They don't know how to make, uh, how to handle themselves. It reminds me of that old joke about the fellow that from the city who climbed over the fence who started to, and there was a bull in the yard and behind the fence, and the fellow said to the farmer, "Is this bull safe?" He said, "Yes, but you're not." <laughs> yes. Well, the uh. Adoration, uh, which is what it amounts to with some of animals, is very selective. I don't find any group for the protection of skunks. You're looking for one, though, I know. Oh. You've got a skunk plague, and you're, you're 
thinking in the other direction. We, I'm glad to say, are getting rid of them. Of course, uh, skunks are very prolific, you know. So Six to a litter, several litters a year. But since the oh well, first of October, Isaac has trapped twelve of them. Goodness, and other things as well. So I'm glad that there is no society for their protection. They're a real plague. Well, it's not. If you listen or watch the uh, environmental groups in action, you're watching something that's pretty scary. Yes. Uh, when I was on the, when I was writing the history of Raytheon, one of its subsidiaries was a very large engineering company, headquartered uh, somewhere in the Pittsburgh area, and they had a contract to put up a nuclear plant in the Baltimore area, Sparrows Point or somewhere around there, I think. At any rate, the man took me into a room, about as large as the room in which we are now seated and it had shelves on all the way from the floor to the ceiling, everywhere except the door, all filled with uh, bound volumes. And he said, these volumes are the environmental and impact statement studies that we've had to make about this plant. He said the plant originally was going to cost, I've forgotten, several hundred million, but it ran into the billions. Mm -hmm. A billion is a thousand million. Yes. And the hearings, he said, were endless. Finally, he said, we had, we thought, answered all objections. We had a final hearing, which the inspectors said had to be by law made public, and in came the hysterical housewives and the rest, and who have this feeling about nuclear energy that their forebears used to have about electricity that would kill you just by being there. And the hearing seemed to go pretty well because all the objections had been answered until somebody said, suppose a plane falls on it. Well, the, uh, the engineer said it's not in the plane pattern. Uh, we don't expect a plane to fall on the plant. Well, they said, suppose a plane strays off the pattern and, and uh, has a problem and falls on the plant. Have you made provisions against that eventuality? Well, he said, no, we haven't. Well, the whole thing was stalled again until they reinforced against the eventuality of a plane falling on the plant at a cost of many more millions of dollars. Now, what the environmentalists and the newspaper people and others don't seem to understand is that all this money has to be paid mm -hmm. and that the people who pay it are the idiots who live in the community who let the environmentalists run this bill up. Yes, and what people are not aware of is that one of the contributing factors to the recession we're moving into is the environmental movement. A big factor. The cost to industry, the cost of business to operate is becoming prohibitive. Well, whenever you locate a plant, you have to first check out the available energy sources. You check out where you're going to get the energy to operate the plant. Where are you going to get your power? That's a big, big mm -hmm. point. Mayor or uh, Governor Cuomo in New York 
stopped the operations of a nuclear plant on Long Island that had passed all qualifications. He stopped it from ever going into operation and forgave them multi-millions of dollars at enormous expense of the people of Long Island, New York City, and its environs, and for that matter, the state of New York and the United States. Now I read in the paper that industry in New York is fleeing yes. because of the high taxes and the high cost of all services and all e equipment. Now, the people in Long Island may not have a nuclear functioning plant, but they won't have jobs in a little while, yes. so it won't matter. Now, this is the death of a civilization when they decide that innovations and change must stop and a civilization has gone against creativity. We can't function. The uh, epitome of the Hindu approach was set forth by Gandhi, the idea that small is beautiful. And that now is the thesis of many of the people in this country. I, uh, some years ago, was asked to uh, uh, speak in a, a class on economics. And the students were being uh, required to read Schumacher's Small is Beautiful. And uh, I had just read the book and I analyzed it. And I pointed out its fallacies, how destructive it was of an economy, how it was not Christian. This was supposed to be a Christian college, mm. evangelical, Bible-believing, and so on and on. It's every presupposition was based on Eastern religions. And the only comment of the professor was, well, I'm going to have to do a great deal of teaching the rest of this week to undo what you have said. Oh, my. Oh, my. Oh, what a terrible thing. Well, the... Indian analogy is right on target. I referred, if you would call recently, to V.S. Naipaul's book on India, A Wounded Civilization, mm -hmm. in which he placed an awful lot of the blame onto Gandhi, who in a modern time was trying to put people back to the spinning wheel, back to wearing diapers or whatever it was yes. he went around in, and permanently confuse those people and they're caught now in a paradoxical position which the environmentalists are also caught in of using telephones of using electric lights of using television of watching films of accepting all the productions of this advanced civilization as though they all fell like manna upon the, the people in the desert, mm -hmm. as, though, as though this civilization is not to be credited for what it has produced and what it has given to the world. They don't seem to understand that every other civilization that ever developed anything kept it to itself. The Chinese hid the secret of silk, and the... Uh, 
you can go through all the other civilizations, Islam and the rest, the reason they haven't written books in histories of other countries and other peoples is that they don't, they're not interested. Mm -hmm. Only the Christians have not only developed things, but given those developments and the fruits of how to create them to the, all the world on the whole theory that it's our Christian duty to help everybody yes. as much as we can. And the environmentalists drive to the demonstration. Their, uh, their poets plug in the electric guitar. <laughs> they wear shoes. The animal rights people wear shoes. You remember when Roman Gary wrote about the, the terrible fascist treatment of animals in which he said we shouldn't use leather uh, we we shouldn't make briefcases out of hide. We shouldn't uh, the ele save the elephants. I think was his idea. And uh, but he wore shoes. He had a briefcase. Mm -hmm. Well, these people are dangerous because they are so destructive of civilization. And it'll be the capitalists and the Christians and uh, the law-abiding element that will be blamed as this recession deepens. Not the Clean Air Act, not the environmentalists. They won't get the blame. Well, I remember the other depression where businessmen were blamed for going broke. Yes. And even as a boy, it seemed to me a pretty stupid kind of reaction. Yes. I mean, certainly the factory owner didn't want to close the factory. There was one factory owner who talked to his staff and his employees and he said, if you are willing to go along with me, I think if you'll forego half or more of your pay each month and all of us take home enough to meet a few necessities, we can survive. And I promise you, you will be paid everything that... Uh, you forego. He kept his promise. The factory survived. They all got paid, and he went to jail for doing that. He went to jail for that. Oh yes. He broke the wages and hours law. Yes. Yes. It's not a question of what you know. It's a question mm -hmm. of the regulation. Yes. This was in Massachusetts. They were still persecuting him in the fifties. Well, the Clean Air Act is coming down the road. It's been enacted and it was signed into law. There were, of course, pages and pages of exceptions for those who were able to reach their congressmen or their senators. Mm -hmm. But the estimates that I receive estimate that at least 50,000 factories will close down. My friends in industry tell me that a big... Uh, effect will be that those who can afford to will move their operations out of the United States into other areas where they don't have a Clean Air Act and they don't have to worry about the inspectors and the monitors. I said, well, if enough of them do that and ship their goods back into this country, we won't have the money to pay for them to buy them. But at any rate, each guy for himself. The dry cleaner, uh, the baker, all kinds of people are going to have to come up to the standards of the Clean Air Act. Mm -hmm. The estimates on the cost of the Clean Air Act run anywhere between 50 and $150 billion a year. Mm -hmm. And this is at a time of recession yes. and higher taxes. Yes. 
Now, the environment is a word which means everything around us. The political environment, I would say, has made the rest of us an endangered species. Yes. Well, our time is almost over. Is there a last uh, statement you want to make to no. sum this up? I wish I could say something hopeful and optimistic, but uh, I guess the best I can say is that excess creates its own reaction. Eventually, these people will uh, pay the penalty for their folly. I've noticed in three comic strips in the past month, the environmentalists ridiculed. So this is a hopeful sign. If they're now the subject of humor, it means that people are fed up. Well, our time is up. Thank you all for listening. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christrules.com.